This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Basically, they go back to the playbook of COVID in a way by setting up some form of crisis team. They all are first caring for their people, which they did in COVID too, but they do it here too. That's McKinsey senior partner Sven Smith talking about the outbreak of war in Ukraine and how leaders might respond. Sven is here to walk us through some of the disruptions we might see in areas like food, energy, and supply chain. Sven, thanks very much for joining us today. I recognize this is a chaotic time for you, given the brutal effects of the war in Ukraine and the ongoing shock and uncertainty, both in the European region and worldwide. Hi, Lucia. It's indeed a complex time. I live in Europe, and basically this is so close that you can't get it out of your heart. My mother is 80. She lived in Eastern Germany and fled from the communist suppression in the 60s. She didn't think she would live to see this again. I think we all, one way or the other, feel that this is not right. And it's happening on our territory and it's happening while we're watching. So, yeah, these are complex times. This is a true atrocity, what's happening and a humanitarian pain that's unimaginable. Yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge that while the war clearly affects all of us, it must be particularly acutely felt in Europe, even outside the conflict zone. I'm sure you're hearing similar things from the leaders that you talk to in your day-to-day as well. Yeah, we just came out of the pandemic. The pandemic is, you know, the virus, we fight it with masks, vaccines, and this one, you know, we're actually fighting human to human, and that's just so different. This war is obviously causing massive disruption on a range of fronts, and we can't talk about all of those here today. But let's touch at least on a few. The foremost disruption, of course, as you alluded to, is the horrific and frightening and rising toll on lives. What have we learned so far about the scale of this humanitarian tragedy and about who is likely to bear the brunt of much of this suffering? At the moment, we're heading north of, you know, towards a few million people that are moving out of the Ukraine uh, as refugees. That number could grow much bigger if this, the hostilities protract, let's say, for the remainder of the year. Some people estimate it might then go north of 10 million, 15 million. The energy prices and the food prices are also pinching at the lives and livelihoods of people all across the world. The less well-off populations in Western Europe or the United States, their energy food spend is 10, 30% of all they spent. The price doubles, triples, and all of a sudden can't do anything else than pay for food and energy. And you see people already adjusting their behaviors of heating less and so on because they just can't pay. Then you multiply that to a poor country that maybe just had an aspiring population that was ready to go the next step. And they get pinched by this price of food, this price of energy, and maybe even the access to food and energy. And you can easily imagine that more lives and livelihoods will be lost and disrupted outside the immediate conflict. In a way, in the pandemic, that was a little bit of an undertold story. 
that while in the West we were doing the lockdowns and so on, and in the richer countries, we were really not paying enough attention to the pain of this economic disruption in poorer countries. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, food prices spiked even prior to the war, given supply chain issues and rising energy prices during the pandemic, right? In, in the US, I think we saw grocery prices shoot up at the highest rate in something like 40 years recently. So do you see increased food insecurity in Europe as a big risk and potentially also an increase in world hunger as a result of this war? So where we are not yet is that the actual shipments of oil, gas and food have stopped at a massive scale. We also have not seen, because it's Northern Territory, a major harvest being disrupted, uh, which could happen if this goes through the summer. And, but what we haven't seen yet is that there's some form of sanction or counter-sanction or hostility by saying, let's not ship the oil and so on. As that gets more disrupted, either by physical disruption or by intent, you can get you know problems with access. At the moment, you have prices which are always rising in anticipation of potential shortages. And what will happen with the prices is that the rich countries will buy and be able to pay, and then the poorer countries will have the access problems or the, at, at the minimum, even more affordability problems. Right. And in those countries, there is a history of food shortages and rising food costs also contributing to social unrest and uprising. But that, but that will not just come in poorer countries. We know that the Yellow Vest movement reacted to an increase in diesel prices. That's just because only a small increase in these items, which you almost cannot stop buying because you want to be warm and you want to drive to your job to get an income. You can't stop buying these, so you have to stop other stuff. And that's where the pain comes. You know, uh, Of course, for some, it will be not going on holiday, which might not be the worst thing in life, but not nice. But for others, it means cutting back on the essentials because basically their spend gets crowded out by these enormous price rises. And what we all are experiencing, just how sensitive for the poor parts of the population, doubling of a price in oil or doubling price in food is to their spending patterns. And it's very easy for the richers to say, you know, this is part of the fight. No, <laughs> this really pinches others. Energy is obviously a huge disruption, right? Given the role of Russian oil and gas, not just in Europe, but worldwide. Sven, you've been so heavily involved in our energy research, including our recent report on the net zero transition. Anything more to say about energy access, at least in the short to medium term? The first point is the energy is still flowing. It's actually a strange world in which you have a war with the country and the energy is still flowing. It could be that it doesn't flow and then we need to do much more radical things. What is currently happening is the energy policy of major countries is rotating. People are saying, in a moment, I would say basically it's an all out, all sources. Let's build more wind, let's build more solar, let's build more nuclear. Let's try everything and then just find out what protects us the fastest. What that does to net zero, what that does to that equation, I think we will only learn over time because the reality is we might find out that in some countries, reoperating coal plants is the fastest way to become somewhat less dependent. And in other countries, it might actually be to finalize the wind farms that are there. But people are going to go all out for now. And then at some point that will resettle into a new equilibrium, which could go either way at the moment. 
but literally physical supply chains of energy are now at stake. Oil goes a little bit more on the boat and therefore it can be flexibly reallocated in a way. Gas needs to be liquefied and then regassed and the capacity for liquefaction and regassing is actually short. And as a result, if we had a gas shortage, it might actually take real time to rebuild it much more than we ever wanted. So supply chain resiliency had already come to the fore as an urgent priority during COVID lockdowns. And obviously COVID continues to be a dynamic issue as we're seeing right now in China, some parts of Europe. How much worse could this get? I think we need to first on supply chain reframe a little bit what happened last year. Because the narrative was a little bit of a broken supply chain. And the real reality was this was an unbelievably strong supply chain. We had unprecedented levels of demand for good purchases in the back half of 21. And the supply chain actually delivered it. So it wasn't the shelves were empty because nobody was buying and, and there was nothing shipped. It was because everybody bought so much. A jittery supply chain could not fully fulfill the exceptionally high levels of demand. And why was it this demand? People had the money. But also, they were not buying services. They were not yet going on holiday, not going to the restaurants and so on. So that put an enormous demand shift towards goods. Now we're actually coming out of COVID in the Western world. And so you could see a rotation back to travel, to restaurants and so on, that would ease the demand on products a little bit, that then sort of would also release something in the supply chain. What, of course, now is happening is that if physical delivery of basic materials from Russia and Ukraine, whether it's food, metals, fertilizer, is not going to be shipped. That's a problem in the supply chain. Some industries have important factories in the Ukraine or important talent in IT, that if they can't get access to it because of the disruption to the hostilities, then their supply chains could be impeded again. And every single client I know is now looking again at what were we actually producing in the Ukraine? Where did we get our nickel? Where did we get our cobalt? And then they are trying to figure out what to do with that. So acknowledging that this conflict is incredibly dynamic, let's turn now to some of the ways this war might play out in the Eurozone specifically, which is obviously, you know, a very sizable macro economy and also very highly exposed. And let's start with a scenario where there is a near term negotiated settlement to the war, which is a possibility that has emerged. If hostilities were to be resolved diplomatically in coming weeks, and we were to assume a modest policy response, what might the economic implications of this war be? Well, we might hope for this situation to come. And you would expect, because that's sort of the parameters of this, that in that case, maybe there would even be a bit of a sanction step down. And you would at least not get a non-supply of energy and certain critical materials, which all would help. And if that then happens quickly, the refugee situation would not be too big. And you would be faster in some rebuild of the Ukraine or something like that. In that case, you could say, you know, maybe Q1, Q2 of this year looks wobbly, and then you can get out of it again and be you know, back to some form of normal trajectory. But of course, it could get worse. And then, you know, you could easily be two, three years under. We don't at this moment expect that the dip that you would go to would be larger 
than the dip of COVID. The simple way to think about this is COVID was a demand shock, an enormous demand shock. And it was for all countries because we did the lockdowns and everything else everywhere. And because we had that demand shock, basically aggregate, we are thinking that this the depth of this one is more in the order of a few percent. And the energy part that we talked about and the food part and supply chain, they are very important. But twice the price of energy is still not a 10% GDP drop. So that's just how this translates. I'm not saying there's no scenario imaginable, you know, where it all expands in terms of hostilities and you actually get a shutdown of the energy supply where it could not get much worse. But that's not the scenario we're talking about right now. What if the conflict just drags on and even escalates as we enter a kind of attrition phase? What happens then? In that case, you would be a few years under uh, with a few percent. And then, you know, then the question is how we restore together. But normally, once normality returns, a form of normality, you get a return to the past growth. But, you know, that depends a little bit on the energy mix, whether we were doing in a, in a severe case, some stimulus to help the weakest to still get through it. Many economists expected 2022 to be the year the global economy really bounced back after the shock of COVID-19. And at the start of the year, we heard all this optimism about returning to pre-pandemic growth trajectories. All that very quickly changed following the invasion of Ukraine and the economic outlook began to feel much more precarious as you're talking about what can leaders expect globally beyond the eurozone? So, you know, the eurozone is far more directly impacted and has the highest dependency on the energy from Russia and also some of the other supply chains. So we expect the U.S. to do better and China probably even better. Just if you look at how much they import from Russia, how their contract structures work and so on. So now China's still dealing with COVID. So that could be another factor for them that takes them down. But if you just look at the Ukraine event, Europe will feel the most and then the US and then China, I think. Acknowledging that there's huge variation among the leaders that you work with and their organizations. Is there anything that leaders can do right now in order to begin to navigate this uncertainty more successfully? Yeah, so I've spoken to maybe a hundred by now. Uh, and basically, they go back to the playbook of COVID in a way by setting up some form of crisis team. They all are first caring for their people, which they did in COVID too, but they do it here too. It's like, where are my people? Where are they in Russia? What can we do? Where are they in Ukraine? What can we do? Who else is affected more indirectly? And so that is a, I think there's number one, two, three priority. Then in the crisis teams, they're looking into, can we continue our operations given our dependency on Ukraine supplies, on Russian supplies, which is very good. And then, you know, the next level is, okay, so this energy stuff, how is that going to hit me? This price, does it mean my products are going to be more expensive? What do I do on my price? Does it mean that people are spending money on the energy, therefore they don't spend on my products? So people are just translating the information that's coming in into a model for their own companies to sort of model this supply disruption. And then they're wondering about what it will do to demand as well. And with that, then over time, they will start adjusting their strategies. I think all of them are also, like we suggest, also planning in the scenario sense rather than a full certainty sense. So they're trying to say, what kind of storm are we weathering 
here and in what kind of range? Last question, Sven, I've heard you say that the COVID-19 crisis actually helped to revitalize the social contract by massively reinforcing the social safety net in places like Europe and in the US, at least temporarily. Yep. How do you see this dynamic, this social contract evolving in the face of the war in Ukraine? I think coming back to the COVID one, the level of support we gave to those that were affected by the pandemic has been enormous. You can always debate, did it exactly land in the right place? But we did help restaurant owners. We did help factory workers. We did help people that couldn't work at the houses of other people. And so one way or the other, a significant amount of money landed in many places. And probably this was the largest support action done since a long, long time, maybe ever. We all you know, have an increased debt to GDP as governments now, but uh, I think in hindsight, people even thought this was on average worth it because the alternative would have been much worse, mass unemployment and no support for people and so on. So I think we have a lesson here. And even at the beginning of this year, when prices for oil and gas already went up, you, for example, here, Italy and Spain talk about billions in energy support or the cut of VAT taxes of energy and so on to just compensate a little bit the blow of the energy price in the hope also it wouldn't sustain that long. I also think that we need to be a little careful as for those of us that have the money to not be too light on just how much it is. Some people say, you know, this is the energy price we wanted anyway to force people to go to alternatives. And this was, you know, this is exactly the right thing to help fight the battle and so on. That might be a very easy thing to say if you have the money, but if 30% of your costs are food and energy in the old prices, it's now 90. That means there's nothing left. And I think that's the pain that people feel. And I'm not sure whether we are already creating the situation at that level that we had in the pandemic, uh, but it might come as the pinch gets felt more directly. But, but clearly the action to replace this energy supply as fast as possible is also triggered by the idea that this is not a good way for people to live at this level of price and food insecurity. Very helpful, Sven. Thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's good to be with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. 